Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome back to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. Now, you're probably more accustomed to seeing this week's guest scaling a windswept hillside or basking in the delights of a British coastal path. But today, writer and television presenter Julia Bradbury joins me from the comfort of her own home. Julia's passion for nature and the outdoors is the cornerstone of her impressive career in telly. Presenting countless shows on the BBC and ITV, such as Country File, Kill It, Cook It, Eat It, and Britain's Favourite Walks. Busy juggling her career and raising three young children, Julia was blindsided by a breast cancer diagnosis in 2021. And whilst recovering from treatment, she made a documentary, a very powerful one, Julia Bradbury, Breast Cancer and Me. When she was filming that, Julia met today's expert guest, Dr. Caroline Leake, who founded the Fruit Fly Collective, a not-for-profit organization supporting children and families when a parent is diagnosed with cancer. It's often a subject that's hard to talk about, but it touches all of us midpointers in one way or another. That said, do take care if this is a tough subject for you at the moment. Okay, let's meet Julia. Julia Bradbury, hello, and thank you so hello. much for coming on the midpoint. I'm I'm just happy that we finally managed to pull this together. It's taken a, it's taken a while, but we're here. You are a busy lady. Um, where have those walking boots been in the last 24 hours? Oh goodness me! Well, in the last 24 hours, they've actually been. This is this is a bit predictable. Um, they've been in the Peak District, which is where my walking started with my dad. And I've been making a really beautiful film for the National Trust, actually about that whole thing, how I got into walking, and that area. We, we went up a beautiful um, little mountain called Mam Tor, Mother Hill, and my dad and I were reflecting, and it was just all very emotional and lovely. And my dad, bless him, he's 83 now. His knees are very, very sore, and have almost given in and when I made my um, my breast cancer documentary we took the whole family up there it was kind of a, a moment after um, my mastectomy and uh, we all got up there and it was my mum and my dad and my sister and my three children my nephew wasn't there my partner was there we were all holding hands on the crest of Mam Tor and it was just very beautiful and I couldn't help but shed a tear because I thought to myself just looking down the line we'll probably never do this again together because of my parents' age and how difficult it is with modern living and life to pull everybody together. And actually, my my dad yesterday, he managed to get halfway up and then he couldn't make it to the trig point. Mm. So I gave him a kiss and I ran up to the trig point and I gave it a hug and I went back down. I said, I did it for us, Dad. So yeah, it was a bittersweet day, but very, very beautiful. And the peaks were looking lovely. Well, I ask you, of course, about walking because you're probably one of the most famous walkers in the country, but also because your new book, Walk yourself happy is going to be referred to a lot hopefully over the next hour or so when we chat and it's excellent I've read it and really really enjoyed it and I'm what I'm going to do a little bit later if it's all right with you is I've kind of pulled out about six or seven things that I just want you to expand on that are part of your um I don't want to say advice because that sounds prescriptive but just kind of the things that you're suggesting to people that help us lead happier healthier lives I think and the reason of course, that you are in a position to do this or you're doing this, I, I imagine, is because of what you've learned over the last few years, which it seems to me, kind of having read the book and also reading your story, it would seem your midlife has been in many ways shaped by your experiences with cancer. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. And I like to I sort of steal the phrase that it, it has shaped me, it doesn't define me. But it certainly was um, an interesting way to hit midlife, uh, a breast cancer diagnosis. Those are the words that, that nobody wants to hear. And I know that, you know, you're, you and your family have experience of that. It's a complete shock. It turns your world upside down and there's so much that you have to deal with. But I certainly made a promise to myself once I was through my treatment that I would change things and change myself 
and certainly look at my health in a different way. The book, actually, the idea for the book, Walk Yourself Happy, was in existence before my breast cancer diagnosis, because, as you've said, I've, I've sort of, I'm quite well known for walking on the telly box and stuff. And uh, I thought it was a really, I particularly like walking as a tool for health because I think it is accessible to most people. If you tell people they've got to start weight training three times a week, which I do talk about in the book as well, and you tell them, um, you know, certain things that perhaps would be better for them to eat and all of those things, it can be very overwhelming. And for a lot of people, I think it, it, it's the stumbling block will stop them getting getting started. Walking, I call it sort of like the gateway drug to exercise <laughs> because you can literally start with one foot in, in, in front of another. And actually what I've got throughout the book, which is lovely, I've got stories of people who started walking and it's changed their lives. It's given them an incredible health prognosis um, and, and outcome after they started walking. There's a man in the book who just dug a pond in his garden. He was riddled with arthritis. He was, he was inflamed. He was sore. He was depressed. And he embarked on this project in nature to, to build a, a natural pond at the bottom of his garden. And he learned other things along the way, including meditation, and he completely transformed his life mm. and his health by doing something. Well, let's like talk that. about and you though, Julia, right? And how okay. you right. and yeah. how you have changed. And you you just referred to it there as, you know, being different to before in terms of how your lifestyle was. And again, you talk a bit about this in the book. And I was really surprised to read actually that you didn't have the healthiest diet. You know, you kind of confessed to being a fan of, you know, on on shoots, grabbing the bacon sandwiches, the processed kind of meals that that are around. You know, I think if anybody's been on a film set or on a TV set, unhealthy snacks are us was the kind of like, you know, is your experience. And and you were one of those people that just did because I, I guess because you didn't have an issue with weight or, you know, you, you were always naturally slim. You didn't think too much at the time, maybe, about what you were putting in to the engine. That That's absolutely right. Uh, I've always had sort of quite a high energy. Uh, I have always been slim. And when you look at my dad and you see him sometimes uh, appearing with me on, on, on screen, he's naturally very slim. Even now in his 80s, weight isn't a problem for him. He's got other issues, but it's not weight. So I did just grab what I could and I needed, I felt like I needed fuel. And that fuel, as as you quite rightly said, when you're when you're on the go, TV crews, I mean, it's pretty bad now. I mean, I, I try when I'm on shoots now to encourage the um, the production team to put healthier options there because mm. it is just rubbish. It's the crisps and the sweets mm. and the chocolate bars and the and the stuff in plastic um, wrappers, you know, basically, the, the isn't it? Yeah, it's all the processed stuff mm. that's being spoken about so much at the moment, and we know is so bad for us. And as you quite rightly said, because I didn't have a, 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 an issue with my weight, I would just I would be the one elevens is dunking the 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 biscuits in the hot coffee or the hot tea on the mountainside or in the studio wherever we were after lunch. I'd always have the chocolate brownie I could have the treacle pudding I could have the custard I could have the I could have the dessert and I did um, and then at night I would uh, you know sit on the sofa and have a like a, a box of popcorn f- uh, po- and pour Maltesers into it because I've got this incredibly sweet tooth or ice cream and popcorn weird combinations and I did all of this really without thinking that every mouthful of food that you that you do put into your mouth does have an impact on your health. And when you start talking about that and you start telling people like that, they get very defensive and we've got, oh, what is there left to eat then? What do you mean? Can I not do that? And I'm not saying, obviously, don't ever have a treat and don't ever, uh, you know. Well, you suggest some nice sweet alternatives if, if you have got a sweet tooth, don't you? And you suggest little things that can be made. But you're right, people get quite, do get quite defensive because it feels like we're being bombarded from every angle. Well, when I say bombarded, I actually kind of find it amazing that people haven't got the message yet about processed food. But anyway, that we're being told this is bad for you, 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 this is, you know, okay, what's left? What's left to eat that I can actually, yeah. you know? And, and then it's accessibility, as you say. It is the easy option. I don't blame anybody. This isn't me saying, oh, you're doing bad things here. I did it. The accessibility and the convenience of these foods drives us all towards them. You know, we're busy. Uh, we've had a we've had a long day. What are we going to What are we going to make the kids for supper? Oh, we'll just get one of those pizzas. The pizzas in the box and the plastic. That, you know, and we can just shove that in the oven and it'll be ready in fifteen minutes. Or the pasta, the bag of pasta. That's easy. And then we can buy a. You know, you can get the tin or the can that you pour over the pasta. And again, I'm not saying that on occasion you know, needs must. And we all have to do that. But actually, that convenience comes at a cost. If this becomes your go to, if this becomes what you do all the time. So do you feel quite strongly that your lifestyle was a big factor 
I really do. And I don't feel it in a blamey way. And I do have these conversations on social media where I'm vocal about this and say, this is what I've done to change my life. And people say, I, I, you know, I feel like you're blaming me for my cancer. And my oncologist said it's not my fault and I shouldn't feel that. And it's not. It's not our fault. We live in a pretty toxic world. We're surrounded by many, many more environmental toxins than ever before. Everything from laundry, laundry liquids to our cleaning products that we use in our house every day. And laundry liquid, people might go, well, what's wrong with that? You sleep in, in your sheets that sometimes are covered in chemicals and enzymes and fragrances, which are bad for us, have a long-term effect. If you're sleeping in those sheets every night, that will have an impact on your health. Um, there was an interesting panorama a, a couple of months ago where they put two twins, two twin girls on a diet and one of them was on a very processed diet and one of them was on a, a, a healthier diet. And after two weeks, just two weeks, the impact, the, the biomarkers that they took on the, the, the twin girl, I think they were in their 20s, that had been eating the processed food after two weeks, the changes were profound times that by our lifetime and our lifestyle and you begin to understand the impact that it has on us. Again, not our fault. It's what's available and it's what's being sold to us. Well, it has to be something, doesn't it? Because I remember about 10 years ago, uh, one in four people, you know, will have cancer. That's gone down to one in two, right? Mm -hmm. And that's going to go up by 2030, by the way. Right. It means we're all going to, end going up to have a cancer, cancer diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. in a short period of time to go from, you know, one in four people, you know, to one in two people, you know, there has this this is not a coincidence there is there are things happening obviously that that this you know it's not just about us finding because some people say well we're just finding out more well, yeah we are finding out more and 50 years ago some cancer diagnoses wouldn't have happened because we didn't have the technology and we didn't have the medical know-how but lifestyle factors are certainly at play here aren't they so how easy was it for you to convince everybody around you and i mean your close family mm, my family your nuclear family yeah. to go with you on this in terms of the changes so that is one of the most difficult things, I would say. And it certainly isn't easy. And with young children, it's not easy because they are bombarded. The snacks that they get offered at school, school, school lunches and dinners, pack lunches, all of those things. So I, I also had to try and protect my mental health and their mental health as well a little bit during all of this process. So they see me living by example. And we can go through the changes that I've made in a moment. I have, last night, for example, we took our kids to the circus. No animals being used, by the way, just <laughs> saying, you know. <laughs> um, and the, the offerings were not brilliant. There was a crepe stall and there was a hot dog stand. I went, you can have the crepes. That's, you know, of those two, mm -hmm. that was the best The lesser offer. of the two evils. <laughs> the lesser of the two evils. And then they said, can we have uh, the candy floss? Well, that to me is just, it's, it's I mean, it was painful. There are two things I hate about it. It's a bag of processed refined sugar and it's in a plastic bag because health and safety means they can't put it on a wooden stick anymore. So I, I looked at my partner and I went, yes, of course you can. And he looked at me and I went, see? And he went, well done. <laughs> and it was like, it was a big thing. But the problem is there are always occasions like that. You go to the cinema, can they have a massive, you know, bag of whatever it is? So I don't have sweets in the house. I don't let them drink fizzy drinks at all under my watch. Doesn't mean they don't, but they don't do it at home. They can't do it with their friends when they come home. That's a no. So I've just, I've put the, the markers down, but I'm realistic that they will be taking in some sugar and refined foods and all the rest of it in their life. But what I hope is that, and I've this has been borne out by friends who have older children who ha have, be, have been much healthier than I have during my lifetime, and they've said they come back to it. They will get back to it. They will remember what you said and they will You might come hear, back. this is what I was told by, because all of those rules that you have I've pretty much had since they were tiny. So our treat drawer was rice cakes, you know. And um, and then my daughter at one point, Lois, said to me, um, because of your aversion to sugar, you've driven me to be a binge sugar. And I go to other people's houses and I just eat all their sweets. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I can't, you know, apologise for that because I, you actually don't need the sugar. So you've decided to go and do that. So this is when she was about 15. Now, at 17, nearly 18, she, you know, she's kind of conceded that, you know, that was that was her choice. Obviously, that was a kind of, you know, a willful behaviour that she was outside the house. But, you know, I was obviously called the fun sponge and, you know, other people's parents give them sh more sweets than we have. You know, all these things were kind of levelled at me. But I just 
kept going, you do, I guess. You, and you just have to take it, don't <laughs> yeah. you, as a parent? It's kind of it's it's part of the you put on this body armor and you go, I'll take it. I'll I'll take the fact that you're gonna hate me about it. I'll take all of the insults. But your daughter now, who's 15, 16, will be learning about hormones and what she will know and what you will know is that diet and nutrition has a huge massive, role yeah. to play. Massive role. And refined sugar, I'm afraid, mm. is it's it's up there with one of the big players that can have a profound impact on all of our hormones, but particularly teenage well, girls. What she said to me the other day was, she said, what I've learned is that if somebody gives me a chocolate bar, I can just have one piece and save the rest of it for another day. I don't have to, you know, eat the whole thing and have a, a treat. And you talk about 70% plus dark chocolate um, in the book as well, don't you? And, you know, there are healthy versions of sugar or that fix that, you know, on that feeling that sugar gives you. And a little, a little hack for people, I've completely changed my taste buds. So first of all, you can do it. You can sort of wean yourself off that craving for the very, very sweet stuff, which, by the way, is completely natural. So again, no blame. We have evolved to like the taste of sweet because sweet, when we were cavemen and cavewomen, sweet equaled nothing bad. It was a safe food. You'd, it was a ripening fruit. That was always good. You know, that was a that was a real treat. Sweet now, ironically, is exactly the opposite. It's toxic. It, you know, they make them blue and bright red to, to look like a lovely plum or a cherry or anything else, but they're anything but that. So that's one thing. But I now, for me in the morning, blueberries are my heaven. You know, it used to be very salty, a very sugary muesli. And I would even put some maple syrup on some honey on top I don't need that anymore I have changed where the it's blueberry habit. you can is change enough. your palate you definitely can um, and when I go out I take my dark chocolate buttons with me I was when we were in the Peak District we were staying in a really lovely hotel that we go to regularly they always have a gorgeous menu three courses included including a lovely pudding at the end and I bring out my pecans and my dark, my dark chocolate buttons and I went knock yourselves out and that's what I'll have I have a little handful and I have my nuts to balance it off you know the, the fat with the with the sugar and that does it for me. Does that mean I never have cake at a friend's birthday? No, it doesn't. Does it mean I don't celebrate, you know, a wedding with friends? No, it doesn't. Does it, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have to. It means most of the time you can make 90, better 10. choices. I always, you know, yes. 80, 20, 90, 10. If you, you know, I always say to the kids 80, 20, because I think it's more realistic for young people maybe to kind yes. of be on that quota. But yeah, it's about balance, isn't it? And your motivation and motivation comes into all the, you know, the best kept habits are, are done through purpose and motivation. And the purpose for you is to not get cancer again, which is the most amazing reason to take your pecans out your bag. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge motivator. And I heard one doctor say that he's never met more committed people than ex-cancer patients in terms of what they will do and how they com they will commit to a healthier lifestyle if that is your mindset and if you are if you're informed with the knowledge and that knowledge means something to you and it is my biggest driver we'll talk about this uh, in a moment i know we're going to talk to um caroline from the fruit fly collective which helps families tell their children about cancer but there is no question that for me when i told my children in the back of my mind I just didn't want this to have to be a goodbye, mummy's going to die moment. I wanted it to be, okay, I'm really going to take stock here. I'm going to do everything in my power to be here for my children. And it remains the biggest motivator when I'm, you know, a bit fed up and when I like, you know, somebody brings a lemon drizzle cake into the house, I want to have a big slice, whatever else. It's a very easy thought to go back to. And I understand for everybody that that is not the case, you, you know, and I hope, I don't want people to have to have a chronic illness as a motivator. But I also don't want people to be in this situation. And we go back full circle to the lifestyle implications. And we know, just the way we know that smoking causes cancer. I've got three friends at the moment who have throat cancer who all smoke. We know that smoking gives you cancer. We know that obesity is a factor. We know that drinking can fuel certainly some cancers, including breast cancers. And we now know that processed foods might not equal cancer, but they equal illness. They equal a liver not functioning properly. They equal your body systems not being able to cope the way they should be. And that then, it, it's sort of like the crack in the window, isn't it? That is then what lets other chronic illnesses through the door and that can lead to whatever else down, mm. down the road. So you mentioned your, your children there. You've got three kids, 13 and nine now, the twins nine? So the girls are just eight and, eight. and Zeph's 12. So 12, yeah, okay, yeah, I've added a yeah, bit of a year yeah. onto them. You've um, added, that's right. Don't do that. I need every year. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, and so they were 
very young, obviously, when when this happened. Did did you have because some families don't share the news, do they, with their with their offspring? Mm. And they that you know they in fact they keep it very very tight with perhaps just their partner and you know try not to tell many people. Were you um, minded to include them very early on in your cancer? process and treatment? I was. I was. And there were two reasons um, for that. First of all, I knew that I wouldn't be able to keep the cancer a secret from the press, from the media, because I had to retract from certain work Mm. commitments. And, you you know, it's one of those things that if you're seen going in out of a hospital or whatever else, and I have always felt if you can, in certain situations, control the story Mm. much better. Um, to do that. And I have a journalist friend who I work with often who I phoned her and said, would you do the story for me with me? Because I trusted her implicitly mm. not to rewrite it as well. And so Sarah Oliver was the person who did that for me. And I'm very, very grateful that I had that mm. autonomy over the story. I suppose any what control that... when you have a cancer diagnosis, any control you can get back in your life, and that includes the way you tell your story, is so important. I was just thinking about control when you're talking about how you eat now. And and that is all play that all plays into that, doesn't it? Because the cancer is something that feels so out of control at that point. Yes, and it's also it's grabbing any moment of any feeling of power empowerment that you can, and that is what uh, that's what I do with my diet and my lifestyle. I am empowered. I'm learning all the time about my body. I've done a DNA test. I know what works for me. I know what doesn't work for me. That empowerment, it, it, that knowledge is empowerment. And yes, you're quite right. That control from the beginning of the story was was very important. But what it also meant was um, my children would find out. Because once you go public, then even, you know, it's at school and school gates and teachers and all the rest of it. So I had to tell them and I wanted to tell them. And my partner, Jerry, and I discussed it. And we went out to our garden, which is our favourite place. We told them um, holding hands. And yeah, I, I don't, it's, it's, it's always a very emotional memory to recall. And, and my, one of my daughters said to me, can I, can I still hug you, mummy? Which was just this heartbreaking moment. I was like, yes, of course you can still hug me. And then my other daughter subsequently always asked, are you going to die? And I said, I don't think so. I really don't think so. And I'm going to do everything I can not to. Um, But you do have to know that cancer is a serious disease and people do die from it. So you will hear stories of other people dying from cancer. And I don't want you to think that means I am going to. It just is what we call it's a risk. And so we continually and it's a conversation, you know, you have been through this with your family. The conversation never stops. It crops up all the time. I mean, that same little girl, the other little girl, not the one who said, can I hug you, Zena? She asks me quite profound questions all the time. Is it what happens if your cancer comes back, mummy? And we know that secondary cancers are bad news. We know that it's very hard to treat them. Um, so again, you know, you have to be honest and real with them. And, and um, or I felt that I had to be. So yeah, one of the most difficult things that we ever, I think, have to do in our in our lives. And uh, it's it's to be considered very very carefully. And I'm incredibly privileged and lucky. Our family are close. Like yours, we treasure our bonds. We treasure our relationships. I'm still very, very close to my mum and dad who are in their 80s. Um, I know they're not going to be here forever, but, you know, we talk all the time. They come and stay. They look after the grandchildren. I have that family bond, which is one of the things I'm eternally grateful for. It's one of my gratitude journal every day. Thankful for my family. And your sister as well. She's she's a big, oh, big, big part of your My life, sister Gina, who is, I, I mean, I, I wrote in the book, you know, I, I think my sister would throw herself under a bus for me. I mean, I'd never want her to, but I think she would. Um, but aren't we blessed to have that unit? Well, your parents, interesting, you, you talk a bit later in the book about the, the kind of diet that your mum would have, you know, produced and, and the foods that she would have produced as a child. And I can mm. believe some of the things that you said you didn't like. I was amazed that, you know, some of her amazing recipes that she um, she was she was cooking very healthy Mediterranean style uh, yes, because she's weak. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, I didn't really like that. I didn't like that. But now, obviously, you've kind of gone back almost. It's that full circle yes. to to the kinds of, of things that she would have produced. But it's interesting now because my mum, bless her, um, she has uh, she has a passion for bread and she has a passion for starchy carbs and potatoes. And she also has a bit of a sweet tooth. So now it rolls are reversed. So we'll go out for dinner. I'll go, mum, you can't have that. <laughs> she'll go what and I go no put the bread down <laughs> um, order a side salad first and she'll look at me and I'll go 
you need to do this now. You know, you need to stay healthy. And uh, and people might not know, but, you know, the bread basket, that your sugar just skyrockets if you start your meal with the bread. I mean, bread anyway, I'm, I'm not going to diss it, but slice, I will diss sliced bread from the yeah. supermarket because it's just not bread and it's no, not good for you. No, but it, it doesn't give carb. you anything. <laughs> it doesn't. It just gives you a sugar spike. That's what it gives you. And probably a bad tummy if you're, if you're gluten intolerant as well. So, you know, all of these things and people go, that is one of the things people hate you saying bread oh my god tell them not to eat bread and pasta and they might as well give up their lives and you know well it's not like that actually there's so much else that you can replace it with absolutely the other night i made um the kids love this prawn thing that i make with just very simple chilies and garlic and stuff and um, i am um, instead of making it with rice i made it i used lentils so i cooked some green lentils put some roasted cherry tomatoes in with it and a bit of oregano and had the, the prawn sat on that instead of rice <laughs> And yeah. Lois said, oh, wow, mum, I love my favourite lentils. Oh, and Ruben said, why would you do this to me? Is it not bad <laughs> enough that I have to be so healthy and you've now taken away the rice? Um, <laughs> <laughs> OK, so I'm going to have you tried them with cauliflower rice? My kids don't even know the difference yet. I put that, I do the cauliflower rice. Just, That's just, a good idea. <laughs> just zap a cauliflower head and use that instead. And you can put some little flavours in there. You can add your, yeah. you know, your, your seasoning. Do you know and what? By I've the got time a cauliflower you've... in the fridge that I'm going to do that you just bracket in the um, food processor do you yeah back in the food processor and, and it literally it looks like rice you can make it taste like rice if you use a bit of chicken stock or you know whatever else and and put your main event on top of that that works a treat excellent that is going to happen and when he and when he susses me out i'll be straight on the phone to you i want yeah, what to go, next <laughs> i want to go through a few things as i say the book is filled with brilliant takeaway advice and things you can do to tweak your life and reasons why you should be walking and beautiful stories of people who have and have used it to heal um, and there's lots of areas i want to just you to expand on but one of the, the 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 quirky things that I read early on, which I loved, which, which was about being outside, tell everybody about what babies in Iceland do differently to babies in this country, maybe, and how much time they uh, they might spend outdoors. Yeah, so I've spent quite a lot of time hiking in Iceland and filming in Iceland because it is just due the country, um, not the um, supermarket. Yes, not the supermarket. <laughs> let's let's get that right. And it is otherworldly. You know, it's uh, geologically one of the most interesting places on Earth. There are more than two hundred volcanoes. It's a constantly changing landscape. It's just beautiful, and um, it also uh, has light issues. You know, there are times in the year when you only get two or three hours of light. So the the Icelandic folk leave their babies outside the cafes and the coffee shops in their strollers um, when they're having their little catch up with friends just to get, you know, to get the fresh air, to get the daylight. And it's when you when you delve back into their history and how um, the Icelandic population used to live, they used to they used to live underground almost, mm. tunneled, you know, in, in these earthy mountains. Like something out of Lord and of the Rings, the, I'm imagining. Very like mm. that. And of course, that, that's not great in terms of um, what you're taking in because full of mould and, and you're, you know, you're under there with not great microbes mm. and all the rest of it. So again, the children would be outside a lot of the time as much as they could be because it's just intrinsically better for us so you know you go you'll go past the cafe and you'll think that all these Icelandic babies are, are abandoned but actually they're just having a little hangout outside well well the parents are having a, a bit of a hangout inside or sometimes they're all outside together and it's just a lovely you know what a lovely thing to yeah. do well, I get about kids... this in, I think in Sweden for similar reasons they, they they do this as well because of the benefits of I think I'd read about it to do with cold um, air as well and how important that yeah is it to... is it's it's just sort of getting getting them used to that outdoor air and experience and the better the better air, the microbes, the daylight. Um, I mean, you'll know that one of my new uh, daily practices is every morning now when I wake up, two things that I do. First thing is I smile for 30 seconds. It has an impact on your brain chemicals. It does make you happier. It's really easy to do. And do you know what? Even if it, you know, even if people go, what a load of rubbish. I mean, there is some science to back it up. What a great way to start your day. You know, whatever's happening, just smile and you will feel better. So I'd urge people to try that for 30 seconds. And then I go to my bathroom window and I climb onto my ledge and it's completely safe. I can't fall out. I'm protected there. And I make sure that I get at least 10 minutes of daylight into my eyes. And I talk to Professor Russell Foster in the book 
And he's a circadian rhythm master. He's one of the experts. He's an Oxford Don. He's studied it. He's pioneered so much information about daylight and circadian rhythms and how important it is for us all to be locked into circadian rhythms. That means the morning light and the evening light. That basically doesn't just power our sleep cycles. We have circadian clocks in our entire body. Our livers have them. Our kidneys have them. Our heart has them. And they all work to time. But it all starts with that early morning light. It's this cascade of hormones that happens when the morning light gets into the eyes, it gets into a, 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 the centre of the brain at the back, and then it starts to feed information through hormones and, and through neurons and everything else. And it's called, you know, it's the dawn phenomenon, not the dawn chorus, which the birds are. It's the dawn phenomenon. It's the awakening response. Interestingly, our cortisol starts to rise, our melatonin starts to rise, everything is is getting ready for the day ahead and what, what that will entail and what that used to entail back again when we mm. were, you know, caveman days. And it's why shift workers have such problems, don't they, regarding if you're working night shifts, it's so hard to be as healthy as you would like to be. I, you know. It's incredibly hard. And unfortunately, the World Health Organization has, has named shift work as a, a probable human carcinogen. Shift workers have higher rates of cancers. They have higher rates of chronic disease because it, we are so, as human beings, we are so wedded to this morning and, and dark cycle. But there are things that can be done for shift workers. They should have access to better foods. They should be eating proteins. They shouldn't be eating, the, the reaching for the sugars and the carbs and all of that. That should be looked after by their employers. Um, there are little uh, devices that you can get that you put on the car if you're driving that will waken you up because falling into a micro sleep is a, is a real problem when it comes to shift workers as well. Doctors, I mean, some staggering percentage, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's something like 45% of doctors have admitted to, to falling into a micro sleep on the way home when they're driving. A really interesting fact, 4am, if you're driving at 4am in the morning, you are less cognitively able than somebody who has been drinking alcohol. Wow. That's the worst time. So good idea to stay off the roads at 4am yeah. and a really good idea not to be driving. I only did one year of a breakfast show on radio where I was getting up at 4.30 every day and I was 22. Mm. So if there's ever time to do it, you know, when you're younger, That's it's it. a lot easier. And I did always come home and sleep for a few hours. But in the winter time, I've never had a winter where I, I had so many colds, so many, you know, kind of flus, things. My immune system felt like it was constantly under pressure because of that lack of daylight, you know, because you're going to bed early and you're waking up, you know, in the dark. And it's, of course, the first thing you do is reach for those sugary kind of breakfast materials and sources that, you know, yeah, you just want, oh, I'll have a flapjack or I'll have a sugary, you know, a sugary drink or something because you're trying to boost yourself all the time. So thank goodness I only had to do it for a year because I, I'm, I'm not sure my health would have been in much nick really if it had been any longer. Another thing I want to pull out from the book, uh, which um, there's so many, as I say, so many interesting things is, and I think this is how you pronounce this, Mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal networks. Mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal networks. The mycorrhizal networks. And this is Professor oh, Susan Simard. Um, so pleased to yeah. call me on. Go on, this. tell tell everybody about these. Okay, so well, first of all, I talk about uh, Dr. Susan Simard in the book because she is amazing. She discovered that trees talk to each other. Now, of course, we're anthropomorphizing this a lot, you know, but essentially this is what is happening. The mycorrhizal network is this tiny, tiny, um, they're, they're very, very thin wires. They are part of the, the mushroom family. They're a fungal and they connect trees, but they don't just connect trees in a physical way. They're much bigger than the root of the tree. I mean, they will be, you know, miles. They will spread for miles. If you're in a woodland, the mycorrhizal network is way beyond the woodland. And what they also do is they feed nutrients back and forth to each other and they feed signals back to each other. Hey, watch out, there's a threat coming our way. Oh, this that tree needs more of this nutrient. Let's, let's help this tree. And the mother tree, which again is something that Susan Simard discovered, is usually it's the largest tree uh, in, in the woodland. And the mother tree has the incredible ability of giving preferential treatment to the trees that spawn from her seed. So if she knows that one of her trees is in trouble, she can reduce nutrients to other trees and feed them 
to, to hers, if you like. Um, and again, this is a very humanised version of the story. And of course, there are other professors and scientists who've had a role. But Susan Simard was groundbreaking and nobody believed her. And she got onto the cover of Nature magazine, which is just the best thing that you can do. So I write about her as somebody inspiring. But she also has spent her entire life around trees. She ironically came from a logging family. She got breast cancer. And one of the most beautiful stories is she's through the breast cancer. She took her daughter to a woodland after her, um, during her recovery phase. And they went to visit a tree, and I can't remember the chemical, but the same chemical from that tree was used in the chemotherapy to treat her. Mm. And they hugged the trees and said, thank you, because nature saved her as well, quite literally. And this all comes into the book, obviously, because um, Julia writes so beautifully about how nature has helped her and, and how the, you know, the, not just walking, but also being present in nature, not just walking mindlessly and, and, and being grateful to the trees and everything around you. And we will come back to some of the other things that I have pulled out that I want to talk to you about um, from the book after we've spoken to Dr. Caroline Leake. And you know, Dr. Caroline Julie, you spent a, a day filming with her. Hello, Dr. Caroline. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. Thank you very much. Hi again, Caroline. Lovely to see you again. Hello. Your potted um, biography, you have been the founder of uh, Fruitfly, which we'll talk about in a minute, but yes. also very soon, Parenting with Cancer, the project that you are behind, <laughs> is launching. Um, and this is funded by Macmillan and the National Lottery. And this is about families being given the tips, advice, practical skills and parenting tools, coping activities and resources to help them when they have a cancer diagnosis. So, Dr. Caroline, tell us a little bit about why this is such an important area for you? Well, we started doing um, support for children really affected by parental cancer about 10 years ago when we realised there wasn't really much, there weren't many resources out there. And if they were out there, it was really quite difficult to find. And the healthcare professionals that we were working with or the nurses, the, the clinical nurse specialists just didn't have anywhere to sort of signpost their patients. And so over the 10 years, we've kind of gain more research and more knowledge about actually a lot of parents just need the permission to talk to their children, say the word cancer, and not feel that they need to protect their children from harm. And so actually what we wanted to do is just collate all the information together and sort of give them the simple tools. You don't have to do, um, you know, a massive intervention. It can be just simple little tools that you can put into practice at home. And of course, every family is different. Every child is different. Every cancer diagnosis is different. So actually um, trying to put them all together in one, basically one's kind of stop shop kind of. And so all healthcare professionals can signpost straight away at diagnosis, at initial consultations can go, here's a website, go and have a look when you are ready. And you can find lots of different types of things that going to help you. And you obviously came together to do some filming for um, a documentary, Julia. Had you used resources like this with your own children before that? No. So I explained to you earlier in the show how I told my children initially in the garden and that we had made as a family the decision to do that. And then I came across the Fruit Fly Collective and thought, what a fantastic resource. I wanted it to feature in the documentary because the reason I made the documentary was to spread awareness about all sorts of things, not just, you know, me having breast cancer, but everything that's available now and, and where we are with the science um, and so many other things. And I just felt that the Fruit Fly Collective was such an invaluable opportunity to experience myself. So I took my son. I didn't take um, my, my younger girls, but Zeph and I went and we came to meet Caroline and her lovely team. And there were other families there. Uh, and we experienced it. We experienced the fantastic resources and how Caroline and her team, how they went through what cancer is. They explained it sort of in a in a in a very accessible language for children, in like a play form. And then there were all these wonderful resources around the room, which demonstrated to children what it's like to have chemotherapy, for example. So when I didn't have chemotherapy, that wasn't part of my treatment. But when you do go through chemotherapy, you're very, very tired. You know, you're exhausted, you're drained. That's one of the, the side effects. And so they had a table full of all these things like toothpaste and um, other everyday household objects. But the toothpaste tube was filled with lead and it was really heavy and hard to pick up. And when the children went to pick up the toothpaste, 
then you could turn to their parents. Their parents went, that's how I feel. When I say I'm tired and you ask me to do something for you, that's what it feels like. It's really hard. Um, one of the children put on um, some boxing gloves to try and tie his laces. Another side effect of chemotherapy is that you lose sensation sometimes in your fingertips. And it's incredibly hard to, to, to use your, you know, your dexterity. So he was trying to tie his shoes with the, with the, um, with the boxing gloves and he saw how difficult it was. And he got frustrated and just really simple but so important valuable practical tools and my son was particularly taken with what was it caroline it was the the laser it was it was it was a, one of the treatments how to how to zap oh was um, it the radiotherapy hand the, was it? that's right the <laughs> yeah. radiotherapy yeah you could you could zap um cancer cells um and see them disappear and it was how radiotherapy works you know and and so my son it was like a game it was like you know a video game for him yeah. but it explained it really Clearly. So I, I, and I just felt and still feel that this is invaluable and such a, uh, such a great way to bring other people into the conversation. And then the children interacted with one another as well and were free to ask questions that, you know, you know, I don't think many children want to say, oh, mummy, are you going to die? Although they, they do to some. They can ask a nurse or a doctor like Caroline and say, is my mummy going to live or what, do, what can I do to help? Mm. Or, yeah. Yeah. So that was the experience. And families like Julia's, Caroline, are being helped and coming together in this environment, demystifying things, having things explained to them. Does that aid the person's recovery? Have you seen how that, you know, because you think actually you're taking a certain amount of pressure away, aren't you, from the person that's got the cancer? And that can only be, you'd think, a benefit to that person. Oh, absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, hiding secrets is really difficult, isn't it? It's a massive stressful thing. And also children know, children pick up things, they sense, you know, changes in the household, you know, whisperings or, you know, on the phone a lot. So actually being open and honest gives not only the parent that kind of sort of sigh of relief that is out, we're not kind of hiding it, we're not, you know, like in the school playground is a hotbed of gossip, you know, we're not worrying about that. But also it gives the children the opportunity and the platform to ask questions, to show their emotions, ask and to be basically that nothing's off the table because most children do equate cancer with death. So actually, if they're allowed to say, are you going to die and it not being shut down, then you can say it quite kind of vague response depending on what your what your prognosis is or whatever, but just to show them that actually no conversation is off the table. And that's a really powerful thing because things do change. Or, you know, after, if you're cancer-free, years later, they might start wanting to, to talk about their own experiences and their own health. To be able to always have that open relationship is really powerful. And what age do you start this process? Is there, a, is there a, an age of a child that's too young? And presumably when a child gets a bit older and they're into their late teens, then it's a different conversation altogether. How, how young is too young? Um, I would I would start as soon as you want, as young as you want. I mean, three to five years, I won't really understand what the word cancer really is, but they will have been ill themselves. They would have had colds, they would have had chicken pox maybe. So they get an understanding, uh, their level of understanding of kind of like hospitals and doctors. And once they get a little bit older, from six to 11, then you can really start to um, talk to them. And Using the word cancer is really important because they're probably going to find out and probably will hear it from somewhere. And, you know, kids, they can say stegosaurus, T-Rex and all of those kind of things. So why not use leukaemia? Why not use tumour or whatever? But it's depending on what your family and what the language that you want to use, but not to use com confusing terms like the big C because they really don't understand what those terms are but for some for some kids using a visual aid is really helpful so we often tell parents to think about talk about like um, a a flower bed and so the healthy plants are your healthy cells and the weeds around them are the cancer cells and the, the weeds are kind of preventing the healthy plants from growing and so just like the gardeners that need to take the weeds out the doctor's going to take out the cancer cells and they can kind of get on board with that they kind of understand it so that's even like six-year-olds and then as they go up to sort of 10 11 year olds they want more and more information and you can you know by 12 you can talk to them like adults so you can really start to tell and of course some kids don't want to know everything so it's a good idea to ask them how much do you want to know and when do you want to know it 
Dr. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on and also for everything you're doing, which clearly is a, an enormously important resource. Uh, parentingwithcancer.org is the uh, website and Fruitfly, of course, as well. And I wish you all the success in the world with um, the project, which has just been launched. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks, you. Caroline. Thank Lovely you. to see you again. Bye. Bye. See you, Julie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Juliet, this this podcast is called The Midpoint, and we've we focused a lot on the changes that you've made in midlife because of your cancer, and you know the lifestyle changes are enormous, really, aren't they? To to kind of take on board, and you're going for it, and you're really a living embodiment of of that health. You're glowing, absolutely glowing. Do you feel better than you ever have? Some days I do, and some days I don't. What I have learned to do, which uh, I, I never did before, is to read my health and to read how I'm feeling and not to feel guilty when I'm on a low energy day. Um, not to feel guilty if I don't feel 100% and then to try and nurture myself in the best way. So what historically that might have been, it could have been uh, staying in bed, watching lots of telly um, and maybe eating lots of sweets to make myself feel better, which of course is the, the opposite of what I now know um, isn't helping you and isn't going to make you feel better and is actually doing doing the opposite. So on those down days, I make sure I'll pro I probably won't go and do my, my weight training exercise on that day, but I will make sure that I'm outside in daylight, that I have a gentle stroll. I don't push myself too hard, but I'm outside, um, that I really nourish myself with good food. And I'll phone a friend or go and see a friend if I can, if I'm not working and, and nourish my soul as well. Meditation and breath work has become a big part of my life. So I might focus on a slightly different type of meditation or slightly different breath work if I'm feeling quite uh, vulnerable. Um, so it's really changed everything. And I feel that my approach is better than it's ever been. And yeah, I, on, on my days when I'm, when I'm firing on cylinders, I feel... Absolutely amazing. And of course, the conversation about um, the menopause is so much more out there and widespread than it mm. ever has been. Something we haven't touched on lots over the last few years on this podcast is people, when they've had, when women have had cancer, um, often they are told not to go on HRT and, yeah. you know, to, to look at alternatives for that. Have you reached... I've definitely reached menopause, yes. Um, I'd say I'm probably uh, a fair way on the other side of it. What I've learned, actually, I've done um, various tests. I've done a DNA test and I've also done another hormone test. It's a, a very comprehensive hormone test called the Dutch test, um, which isn't recognised in the United Kingdom. It's used a lot in the States for hormone treatment. It's a really accurate measure of your hormones, but you know, hormone doctors and GPs will say to you, yes, but your hormones fluctuate so much every day. It's just that picture on that day. And of course it is, but it does give you an overarching picture. And I am very, and have been throughout my life, oestrogen dominant. Right. I so HRT wouldn't work for you then? No, I had endometriosis mm -hmm. um, and that would be another clue. And in fact, one of the, I'm, I'm going to be um, releasing snippets of my various interviews uh, throughout the course of the, the book launch. And I spoke to one man who's the founder of, uh, it's called the DNA company in, in the States. And he went through all of my results and he said to me, and of course, the, again, this isn't a, oh my gosh, I wish I wish I could have, could have, could have, would have. It's just the fact. If we'd have had the conversation and I'd have done that test 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't have gone through breast cancer. Because I'm estrogen dominant, there are things you can do through diet, through nutrition, through exercise and through supplementation 
to control that. And there are other little foibles that I have with my estrogen processing that I don't do very well. I don't do a great job of. And I could have altered that and potentially not have had breast cancer. I also did another, um, I did what's called um, a SNPs test, which was in the documentary, where they look at fragments of your DNA. I found out from that uh, test that I have a higher than average chance of reoccurrence because of my genetic makeup, because of my DNA fragments. But again, I can and I am addressing that risk with my lifestyle choices. However, and I really am passionate about this, if this kind of test was made available on the NHS and women had that test at a younger age, when I had discovered my lump, which was two years before it was diagnosed, and I was told, don't worry about it. It's benign. They're benign cysts. You, you know, let's keep an eye, but don't worry. I would have said, I'm at higher risk of breast cancer. Let's not just leave it. Can we do anything else at this stage? Can we test further? Can I do any more? Can I do an MRI? What can we do? Because I know I'm at risk. Mm. And I probably wouldn't have had a mastectomy and lost my left breast. I probably would have had a lumpectomy at uh, that stage. And, um, and I... You know, I've read a lot about um, DNA. I've had some DNA testing. I've read a lot about it. I've listened to a lot of it. makes perfect sense. You know, if you want to know kind of areas of your life that you can actually make good supplementation or you can hack into your diet, it just makes perfect sense. It's proactive health, isn't it? How yeah. expensive would it be? Because it feels like the back end of the health service is very, very expensive. To give cancer treatment uh, to people is expensive. To give any treatment for, you know, diabetes is expensive. If we're front loading and we're saying, right, we're going to give you these tests earlier on in your life, you'd make a saving, wouldn't you, if people acted on the so, information? So I spoke to Professor Gareth Evans, who's now retired, but he was the person who was leading the charge on this test and he's been trying to push it through with the NHS. He suggested that the test could be available to the NHS uh, in the quantities that they would they would be able to purchase it for about a hundred pounds. No, that when I did a story with the mail, they came up with a figure of two hundred and fifty pounds. So let's go somewhere in the middle. Let's say one hundred and seventy-five. Yeah, chemotherapy costs the NHS billions every year. Treatment for diabetes costs billions every year. We we just have to switch the way the health system is working. We don't have a health service, we have a sickness service. What we do is we get ill and then we go to the GP and they go, right, how do we treat it? What, what medicine do we give you? What pills do we give you? What do we give you? We have to start looking at health in a preventative way. And I would encourage anybody, and I know it's deeply unfair, it's not very democratic, but again, I'm trying to put these things out there and campaign to make these things available. If you can afford to do something like this, DNA tests can be £150. People do it because they want to know all sorts of other things about their history. You know, who's my dad? Who's my mum? Or have I got any brothers and sisters out there? Just how Irish uh, am um, I? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, just like, yeah. <laughs> or how Greek am I? Um, we could, for, for adding to that information, what am I, what, what are the potential things I need to look out for for my health? You could just save yourself so much agony um, and so much. And yes, we could save the, the, the health system. I mean, it's, it's really messed up, unfortunately, the, the health system in the UK and in the States. Um, and, you know, I'm full of respect for doctors, but they've been trained in a particular way and mm -hmm. it is how to deal with sick people. It's incredibly frustrating. And um, I, I've written the book and I did the documentary and I, I talked to you here before saying to anybody who's listening, I would so don't want you to get breast cancer. I don't want you to get a cancer diagnosis. And the markers are there. We know what the, what the, what the warning signals are. Start taking it seriously. I wonder if in our lives, Julia, we will live to see that kind of reversal, as you say, of kind of health, you know, where, where actually putting in at the beginning a small amount in terms of the cost it would do, you know, take for the NHS to do those tests or any health service would just save so much at the back end um, and give people better quality of life, more importantly. I mean, you know, this is about living your life to be uh, the best and the healthiest you can be and get the most out of your life. So, right, just to finish off, I want to go quickly back to the book and you can give me as, as long or as short answers you want. It's just a couple of things. You wrote about breathing and you talked about breath work before and again people find breath work a bit scary don't they because they think they're breathing all the time and they're not actually going into the place they need to so what's your kind of starter pack if you like for somebody who's a bit scared of, of breath work 
Okay, so the first thing is we're, of course, yes, as you've rightly said, we're all breathing every moment. It's part of our autonomic nervous system and it's like our beating heart. It's one of those things that our body just does. However, um, most of us breathe through our mouths. So we do a lot of this, a lot of mouth breathing, a lot of gulping air. And um, we're often told as well when we're feeling stressed or panicked, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. And actually, we should be doing the opposite of taking a deep breath. We should be trying to take a light, low shallow breath to calm our nervous system. It's not woo-woo. We can take control. We can sort of override the autonomic nervous system by controlling our breath. And what we can do is we can hack into something called our parasympathetic nervous system. We have a sympathetic nervous system, which ironically isn't sympathetic. It's our fight or flight syndrome. It's when we're on the move. It's when we're being chased. It's when we're getting pinged on our phone. It's the emails. It's the life pressures. And most of us live in that state all day. (laughs) And then we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest mode. You can, we can all really hunker in to the parasympathetic nervous system using a few tools. And one of those is breath work. And the impact is profound. It's very important. There's something called heart rate variability, which is what happens in between the heartbeats. And you want your heart rate variability to be quite high. It's the opposite of blood pressure. So about my age, the average is sort of in 40s or 50s. And that's that's good. You want it to be you want it to be as, as high as it can be within your optimal range. And one way that you can control heart rate variability is by breath work. But the magic thing about it is you can do 10 minutes of exercises in the day and that will help even out your heart rate variability for the rest of the day. So you don't have to do it constantly. So part of my breathwork routine in the morning is the heart rate variability breath. And there are various ones, but it's in for four through the nose, always through the nose, in for four, hold for seven, out for eight. So I'll do it now. So I'm going to do it. You do it with me. So count yourself. So in for four. Gently hold it for seven. And let it out of your nose for eight. Now, if you can do that for 10 minutes every day, you can master your heart rate variability. You can hack into your parasympathetic nervous system and you can help your heart rate variability. Heart rate variability is a test of longevity. If your heart rate variability is quite low, then it can be an indicator that there are other things going on. Maybe maybe cardiovascular issues, maybe hypertension, maybe mitochondrial issues. It's quite a good indicator. It doesn't mean you're going to drop dead tomorrow. It's a good tool and it's a free tool that you can do. So I've just come back, as you know, we, we spoke about it earlier, long day filming up a mountain. It was beautiful, but it was work. I was, you know, I did 12 pieces to camera. So my brain was on. I was with my dad. I was worried about him. Is he going to be all right? Um, we didn't stop for enough time for food and all the rest of it. My heart rate variability dropped about seven points. And this morning I focused very much on my morning light my heart rate so variability. So how do you measure your heart rate variability then? You can, there are various wearables that, right. that give you... That's not a, your heart rough, rate though, that's not the same no, as... No, it's not, it's your, It's called HRV. Right, so if you see that in your um, wearable tech, okay. That's what it is and you say, and sometimes it's a chest monitor and those are the more reliable uh, right. types of measurement but you can do, I'm talking about, you know, an indicator. Mm-hmm. I've got mine on my watch, it's, it's known that um, wrist wearables aren't the most reliable mm-hmm. but it's a good indicator and actually you kind of know as well don't you, you so then if it looks it, and goes, yeah. you can you can feel so I looked at it and was like okay it's dropped a few points and it's unbalanced like yeah that makes sense of course it does I'm tired I'm stressed I didn't sleep while I was in a hotel you know all of those things so you can then you can then start to address like, it. feed yourself and well that day it, yeah. address it mm-hmm. yeah and 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 do that so breath work but then there are all sorts of things you can um, they're in the chapter as well on breath work I talked to Patrick McEwen who's an expert he goes goes all over the world talking about breath work he's done exclusive exercises for me in the book that involve walking mm-hmm. which is great and I think it's a really good way for people who think meditation is a bit woo-woo Fight, try breath work mm, it works better for me I'm not very good at meditation and breath work I think the feel is my 
meditation. It's your meditation. Well, Shane O'Mara, Professor Shane O'Mara from Trinity College, who I also interview in the book about walking, he's a neuroscientist. He knows all the benefits of walking and he talks about it, increasing memory, telema length, life, the whole thing. He said that uh, a third of us don't respond well to meditation, that it doesn't work for us. Mm -hmm. Um, But meditation can be so many things. Mm. It can be breath work. It can also just be sitting Mm. and being still for five minutes of the day Mm. um, and letting all of those thoughts wash over you. Mm. You know, it can be so many things. But I think breath work is so incredibly powerful and interesting because, again, it's that empowerment, it's that control. Julia, can you believe that you're you're such an expert in all these areas now because you've deep dived into so many different... If you look back 10 years to the kind of, you know, early 40s pre-cancer you and your lifestyle and what you know now and what a journey mm. that has been, do you, do you feel like a different person? I feel like a very different person. I feel like this this book is a turning point. In a strange way, I feel grateful for cancer, which I think is a, a, is a positive approach to it. You know, it really did make me reevaluate my whole life, emotional, physical, spiritual, And I feel very passionate now that I have a platform to share these things. And everything in this book is free. There are things that that cost money. And, you know, there is that democratisation of of medicine, which which isn't fair. But everything in this book is free. Walking is free. Getting the daylight is free. Learning about breathwork is free. You can borrow a heart rate variability monitor from, from somebody. You don't have to buy it. You know, you could rent it. All of these things, um, working out, exercise, it's free. And we've completely underestimated the power and the impact that it has on our lives. There's a fantastic doctor called Dr. Peter Atayer in America. And he says unequivocally, hands down, exercise is the number one thing that we can all do to take control of our our longevity, our health and our life. It has more superpowers than any pill that any big pharma company could come up with. Walking alone reduces your chance of cancer, helps your cardiovascular system, reduces stress, increases your mood, increases longevity. That's five things I could just remember the top of my head. Imagine if I was selling a pill and went, Gabby, I've got this supplement I'm telling you can do all of this. I'd be everywhere (laughs) with, with the super pill. And we have those superpowers in our gift, in our strength. It's it's not to say don't listen to your doctors. It's not to say don't take the advice of your cancer specialist. It's not to say, you know, completely ignore the massively important medical knowledge that we've amassed over the last uh, several decades. But be aware, be aware that that we are the CEOs of our body, as they say in America. We are. We're in charge of those bits. You've talked about losing your left breast and you've shown the video of you, of you, the film of you, seeing that for the first time. And it's very emotional, very powerful. How do you feel about your body now? Because I think we all, our, our, our opinions of our bodies, you know, through our lives as women, we judge ourselves so much through our 20s and 30s. And at 50, you know, I have a completely different view of my body to the person I was before. And that's without having gone through what you've gone through. So how do you view your body now? I now view my body as um, a vehicle of health. And when I look at myself naked, I don't I don't look perhaps in the way that I might have done and thought, God, am I, have I, am I still all right? Am I sagging? Have I, have I still got some sex appeal or anything? That's very low down on, on the importance level for me now. It's about... How healthy do I feel and how healthy do I look? Um, I lost a lot of weight during my treatment and my mum was very worried. My family were very worried because I also at the same time I changed my diet and I stopped drinking. So, of course, suddenly uh, on top of all the stress, I wasn't taking in all that sugar. I wasn't drinking alcohol. I cut out all the bad fat. So, of course, I lost weight because my, you know, my, my diet changed so dramatically as well as the stress. I have gradually rebuilt that that weight with a very careful diet and you know I'm one of the few people that jumps on the on the uh, uh to the weighing scales goes yes I've got another 1k <laughs> it's like you know it's and it's important to me to build back um yeah to build back and, and to build back stronger so I feel proud of my body for sort of getting through what it has done and I feel immensely grateful well, I think a lot of people listening and a lot of people who already follow you and know your story are very, very grateful that you've shared as much as you have over the last few years and continue to do great things in this area for people and 
will, I think, hopefully help change a lot of people's opinions and perspectives on, on health, just from the stuff we talked about, about being more proactive. So thank you so much, Julia, for coming on and as always being so candid and open and full of knowledge. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Gabby, and uh, it was worth the wait. <laughs> thank you. Well, I've been trying to get Julia on for ages and I knew she would be a wonderful guest to have on The Midpoint and she certainly didn't disappoint, did she? She's a gorgeous person, brimming with knowledge and enthusiasm. And it's so interesting to hear the journey that she's been on both physically and mentally in midlife. Don't forget Julia's new book, Walk Yourself Happy, looking at the elemental link between our health and the natural world is out right now and I thoroughly recommend it. And if you want to learn more about the help and resources that Caroline and her colleagues offer, head to fruitflycollective.com. That's fruitflycollective.com. As we discussed, they're involved in a new project called Parenting with Cancer. So head to parentingwithcancer.org if that's you right now or someone that you know. Thanks, as always, to Spiritland Productions and to you for spending time with me. Catch you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 